Hello, and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Daniel Doderlein of Alka. Alka is a company to help pioneer mobile cash transfers in Europe. And I brought him on the show to talk about his personal journey of serial entrepreneurship, which I think I hope you'll find amusing, into how he was one of the early players in this space and the barriers that came with that. And with that, here's my interview with Daniel. Hello, Daniel. Hey, Jason. Thanks for taking the time today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. So Daniel Doderlein of Alka, tell us about Alka. So Alka is a Nordic uh, fintech company that was uh, invented 10 years ago. We actually have a 10-year anniversary this year. So in all honesty, saying the word fintech, that word didn't exist when, <laughs> when we started the journey. But well, no, so we're, you're an OG of fintech. You're, you're way back. Yeah. Right, right. But we still consider ourselves a startup. We are a, a regulated financial services entity. We have a license uh, across all of the EU. And we invented and continue to serve the European market with mobile payments, the way we define mobile payments. Excellent. We're going to get into what, how you define mobile payments in a moment. So let's start off by talking about your history. What basically led you to this? I know you have a, you, this is not your first kick at the can when it comes to technology. So it's an interesting story. I, I actually heard your story before, specifically on uh, This Week in Startups. And when you were telling me, I'm like, this is oddly familiar. So let's recap that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah. So I, I'm a serial entrepreneur. And um, besides venturing onto this particular journey, I started my first business when I was 14. I sold ice cream from a boat. Uh, it wasn't a real business, uh, but I made a lot of money from doing that. And, and I guess that sort of sparked something in me. Prior to that, I, I fell in love with technology when my, my grandfather, he was a, a nuclear scientist and he, he worked in the US for a while. I didn't really understand what he was doing. And, and he, he was this very strict guy. So they lived in Oslo. I lived one hour south of Oslo. So it was sort of the big thing to go to their house and visit them. And it was really interesting. He was super strict. We didn't get to touch anything. So me and the other grandchildren. But when he came home with this computer, he just opened the door to the office and said, go in there and play with it. I was like, boom. I was baffled by the opportunity to, to go in and play with this computer. It was a Macintosh 128K that he brought home from the U.S., and, and I, I just, you know, fell in love with technology from that point on. And um, so the combination of the two bringing me sort of to the businesses that are created as a serial entrepreneur. So I guess selling ice cream from a boat is not really technology driven. That's driven by the other passion I have, which is uh, identifying a problem. Uh, you might define it as an opportunity, but whether or not mm -hmm. it's a problem, uh, it is also an opportunity, which in our case, me being Norwegian and growing up in Norway, we have, well, on average, I would Try, try, try in a funny and, and humble way to say we have two weeks of good weather. So when people come to my hometown, which is a, a summer city in Norway, a very popular place for people to have their cabins and go out on the water and everything. When you get those two weeks of, of summer, you go out onto the water and you eat ice cream. So I thought, okay, two weeks of vacation, people are looking for ice cream. We love ice cream. I can bring it to them on their boats uh, or, or to their boats. So I did that. And I guess that was, that was my, my first real business where, where I, <laughs> I, I served the need. It was super fun. I employed a couple of my buddies to help me out. And um, the long and, and interesting story behind that whole thing led me to, okay, if I, if I can find a problem or an opportunity, I'll try to address it and build a business around it. And then adding, adding the technology side on that, my first real company uh, was um, the first domain registrar in Norway. Uh, and I, I founded that when I was 17 years old. My father had to own my shares because I was not legally of age to <laughs> own shares. So uh, we got sort of the first certification to sell .no, so the Norwegian top-level domain in Norway, a bit before sort of the internet was a real thing, I guess. So this is like 1996, 97. And uh, that was combining the two things. So I, I firmly believe that internet was was a thing and and that you know everyone needed a domain name and, and we set up our own servers. We had the first two megabit internet connection 
terminated in my hometown. It was crazy. Ooh, Megabit. Uh, wow. That <laughs> was wild. It was wild. We, we, we routed a whole CNET through that routing. And it was, it was wild, I can tell you. We had like a server rack with a couple of servers on this. So we have a lot of extra capacity. So it, it, it was wild. So I've done a lot of different things throughout my journey. I did mobile value-added services. I did, uh, you know, entertainment uh, portals, ringtones, logos, chat, auction, dating, interactive TV, you name it. I've done all of these things. And sort of in the intersection between trying to serve um, solve a problem or provide to a need while also applying technology to it. So I'm, I'm self-taught. I used to code. I don't code anymore. I'm not good enough for my own patients, but I'm still the architect behind the technology that we, we use in the different companies I've been involved in. And um, I guess fast forward, I've created the clothing brand ones. I run an advertisement agency. Uh, <laughs> I did, uh, as I said, these value-added services with mobile phones, which takes us to my journey with uh, financial services and how I stumbled upon that. I, um, so you're basically, you know, you call it serial entrepreneur. I like to refer to it. You're a, you're a hustler. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, but that's, affectionately. That's, absolutely. I mean, that, that's also but, an, uh, a crucial part of it is to, is to, you know, seize the opportunity, see a problem or an opportunity, yeah. grasp that, apply, you know, some, some, some technology to it, but then also being, being able to hustle, right? I mean, bringing mm-hmm. people together. And I take pride in that, especially when I look at the financial services space, because there's so many, there's so many firsts that we have done in Alka. And we wouldn't be able to pull that off unless we had a vision, some really talented and dedicated people and some hustling skills. Because sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, you just have to, you, know, you just have to put your head to it and, and, and bang your head to the wall plenty of times and, and try to bring people in and, and position yourself. Uh, and it's hard. I mean, it's selling, right? And, and we've done especially a lot of when dealing with regulation, especially in Europe, where you guys are the manufacturing regulation, you're a world leader in <laughs> Europe. Yeah. So. I mean, the, yeah. re- the regulatory side of things has been, th- th- that's a very good example. And I'm glad you brought that up. So, I mean, we were, as far as we know, we're the first company who applied for the license under PSD1. We're the first mm. one to get, the, get the license there in Norway once we started to do that, which is also part of the story I'll tell you. But, and also the first to run fully regulated financial services end-to-end in public cloud. And we chose Google back in the days before they you know, were serving other financial services entities. Almost lost our license from doing that. So yes, there's, there's been a lot of first, you know, educating the regulators about the fact that the cloud is, is actual computers. Uh, it's just, <laughs> it's just somebody up there. It's something up there. No one really knows. No one, what was the movie? It was, uh, oh, it was that movie where they, the sex tape got uploaded to the cloud and like, how do we get it down? It's like, it's up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just somebody else's computers, but that, these are just some of the examples and, and sort of playing into the hustling side of this is, is um, we, we never gave up, right? So we were, we were threatened to, to lose our license because allegedly we didn't have control of our outsourcing setup because we were running on somebody else's computer. It wasn't yeah. sort of in the, in, the, in the mountain container somewhere in your neighborhood. And um, we managed to plow through that as well. And, and as a funny side story of hustling and, and sort of hammering at it and never giving up, after we won that, I wouldn't say it was a legal battle because it went through you know, the regulator and, and then all the way up to the treasury. But I mean, it was a legal battle, but we didn't fight it in court. And mm-hmm. the result of that was that we, we signed a deal with Google to get physical audit rights on their data centers. I believe we're one of oh. the few companies in the world that had that right at the time. It still, is a, it's a noble thing today. I'm very proud being, you know, a Norwegian entrepreneur that built this small, strange company up here in the Nordics. And when you look at the last keynote that was done on Google Next last uh, or yeah, last last year, you see when they come to the financial services uh, presentation, there's a handful of logos that they bring forward on that slide. And you're in there. I'm in there. 
Uh, and I'm proud of that because we, we managed yeah. to educate and build new things and create a, a cloud services program for financial services, making that you know, safe and, and sound. And funny enough, now you know, the, the Central European Regulator, so EBA, has mm-hmm. issued a white paper and a guide on how they recommend that financial services utilize the power and security from cloud services. So this is interesting. So a couple of things. We we got a little bit off track, but it's been a good it's been a good track. So one of the things it's funny. I uh, was at a conference recently, and and regulators got blamed for a bunch of stuff. And I said, look, you know, I'm I'm tired of hearing this. In reality, when I actually speak to regulators directly, or when fintech companies I know have tried to do something different, if they respect the regulation is there for a reason and work in conjunction with regulators, they are very open to evolution. Everybody blames them for not understanding the world around them or for not moving fast enough on certain things, but don't assume that they have full knowledge of the rapidly changing ecosystem around them, right? When you work in collaboration with them, you can break through a lot of barriers, maybe a little slower than technology companies would like to, but they often become the cop-out, not not the actual real reason for for how things happened. It was just the approach was wrong. So we went on- I totally totally agree with you. And I think that's a valid point before we get back into the story. This is such a valid point because when I started my journey with financial services, one of the first things I did is I, I started to understand or I did research to understand how it actually works. And we'll get back to that as part of the story. And I spend a lot of time studying the payment infrastructures, the rules and regulations that apply. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right, right. At the end of the day, I believe that there's this misconception that the regulator is against you. Uh, they're not, right? They, they really want competition and mm-hmm. they, they, re- they really want to drive innovation, but they have to do it inside the boundaries of the laws and regulations that they've been inside to assign to to uphold. And there will always be this, this sort of back and forth. So the regulator is just looking at the rules. And if you go and collaborate with them and you try to educate them and explain to them what you're doing and you can make solid arguments and you can sort of open your books and be proactive instead of sort of hiding, which is typically sort of the compliance thing. Yeah. Don't touch the compliance animal, right? These guys are in the corner there. Yeah. Don't say anything. They will just say no rather bring them in and make them into a business opportunity to find where is the boundary and how can we push it in the same way and stay legal, but provide new services. So, And you have to look at it from their standpoint, right? They're so used to tamping down people breaking rules, right? They're so used to, we had to police people because, you know, these people like behind our backs, they did all this stuff, right? When you actually go to them and say, look, this is what we're thinking of doing. We want to understand the parameters, the lines. We don't want to break any rules. I mean, don't get me wrong. They're just like any human beings. They're going to find people who just going to brush you off. But the vast majority of them, I mean, they, they're, they're used to getting a lot of criticism for not moving forward. And they typically look to people who are, who are willing to educate them and help them make these decisions basically very favorably. So move fast and break things does not work well in highly regulated markets, quite honestly. So we, we got out, that's a sidetrack that we got to. Now let's, let's actually go back to, <laughs> to Alka. So what was the genesis of Alka? How did, how did that come about to be? Right. So in 2006, I stumbled upon financial services. Uh, and the story goes like this. So I just came out of providing value-added services for telco. So ringtones, logos, chat, and, and you know the SMS game. This is the Nokia days. Mm-hmm. So everyone in Norway has a Nokia phone. SMS is ubiquitous. It's like Everyone in the world way. used to have a Nokia phone. Let's be fair. That's, so that's guys, true. So they dropped the ball. Okay, but, yeah. uh, that, that's true. But I, I will argue we were, you know, at least in the Scandinavian countries, we were slightly ahead of a lot of other countries, and, and especially on the SMS side as well. So, so this adoption curve, it's quite interesting, actually. You can look at how these type of technologies has been adopted which also applies to what I'm doing today in terms of the mobile payments, is that they get adopted in the Nordics, Scandinavian countries, and then more often than not, it becomes a trend that spreads. The, how fast it spreads is obviously, it's quite diverse, but it's accelerating. And when we see the trend of mobile payment, just like right now, you can see it's accelerating 
faster and faster and faster. So these adoption mm -hmm. curves are actually being com compacted. But back yeah. to what happened, right? So everyone had a, had a Nokia. Everyone was texting. That used to be my business. And a friend of mine sent me a text message claiming that I owed her some money, which I did. It was, it was for a gift that she's bought for another friend of ours. And I was like, yeah, sure. Um, I'm just out here with my kids in, in, in this playground. I'll, I'll deal with this the moment I get home. Like, first problem, why can't I do this right now? But being a Norwegian at the time, believing I had all the cool tech, you know, available at my fingertips, I politely went home and I logged onto my computer and I logged onto the internet bank and I used the OTP dongle, you know, one of the small calculators to generate a one-time code to log in. <laughs> I looked at my yep. Nokia screen and I manually entered in, you know, the payment details, the amount and the, and the account Button. number of my friend. I had to sign the payment order again with another OTP. And then uh. it just gave me like this payment okay. And I texted her and said, you know, I, I've paid you now. And I was left with this, this feeling that, okay, we're communicating. It's very intimate. It's like from my palm to her palm in real time. and I send money through, you know, allegedly the most, we're the richest country on the face of the planet. We have all the technology, grease, mm -hmm. open, oil and fish and everything. And then I'm sitting here and then I feel like I've sent money on this strange freight train that's plowing through the Norwegian mountains at some, you know, imaginary speed where I don't know where it's going or when it will arrive. And nobody really tells me anything. And she will get the money, you know, eventually, like one day, yeah. two day, you know, if it's the weekend because their computers needs to sleep in the weekend, it might might arrive on Monday afternoon. Which could happen, which could happen, depending, because <laughs> that is how payment <laughs> systems work in North America. But continue. Right. Uh, and then it just hit me that that's a terrible user experience. There's a disconnect between the concept of sending money and the way we are communicating about sending money. So, yeah. okay, I, I knew SMS. I knew I built, you know, large scale, pretty uptime critical mission critical, large messaging services, including some financial aspects of it, of sharing revenue and calculating that. So a naive entrepreneur, I said, I got to fix this. I got to bring these two things together. Why can't we send money as easy as texting? There has to be a better way. The old slogan for everybody <laughs> starting a new tech company. Right. But this sort of brings in the two, the two favorite aspects of being an entrepreneur for me. It is, here's a clear problem. It's a good opportunity. And secondarily, I can apply tech to solve it, right? There needs to be some tech involved in moving this money. Let's replace mm -hmm. this freight train with some fiber optics. So that started my, my financial services journey. So I ended up spending four years studying payment infrastructures. I was the least popular guy in the banking industry in Norway because I called everyone. I plagued everyone. I asked for functional descriptions, you know, documentations of interbank clearing system and the debit network and everything that we had. And finally, banging your head, hustling. Finally, I managed to plow through and one guy that worked in the banking federation. So um, he, uh, because in Norway, we have a proprietary debit card system and we have our own interbank clearing system, which is quite efficient. It's co-owned by all the banks together. And they have this, this, uh, this gentleman's group, I would say, because it was all men. I've never met a woman involved in that whole thing. And Shocking. Um, in shocking, finance and right? technology, just shocking. <laughs> So, uh, well, sadly, it's true, right? But I plowed through and I got the documentation for the uh, proprietary debit card scheme we had in Norway, including the interbank clearing system to run it. And I plowed through it, right? And, and I, looked at, mm -hmm. I looked at payments basically from three different perspectives. And number one, I looked at it from a technology perspective. So how, how does it work? Like what, what's going on under the hood? And then secondarily, from a commercial perspective, so, so you know, who's involved, who gets to you know, charge at the toll stations and who would get mad if I tried to change something and who could I shuffle around in, in my own setup? 
And then finally, from a legal and sort of regulatory and compliance perspective. So what is allowed? What type of licenses are involved? Like what's available? Who's governing this? What's private? What's public? Like what laws apply? Only to discover that basically all of it is crap, right? I mean, it's, it's old, outdated technology, very batch oriented, yep. not really catering to my, my sort of service architecture, restful services. It was all batched. And from a business perspective, you know, if you're on the inside, you're making all the money and everything is good. It's not constructed yeah. in a way where it's innovation friendly in any way. So, you know, trying to jiggle myself into that was virtually impossible. No, and even worse, because the system is so clunky, that basically happened, at least in North America, is that the batching that happens and all the extra heavy lifting, because banks have charged for that cost, that's actually become a profit line for them. And, you know, so they actually now have a vested interest in, in maintaining the status quo, because anything that makes it easier potentially reduces their, their, their revenue and their margins in that. Yeah, I would argue that there are some changes. We can talk about, you know, early warning and the yeah. and the and the new interbank clearing system that you guys have built together. Uh, no, no, true. Perform. But I'm just saying, like that's the that's the level of thinking you would encounter early on, especially at those sure, stages. Sure. Like well, we make Absolutely. all this money off a of batch payment. Like what are you talking about? Right, exactly. And then finally, from a regulatory perspective, right, there was the only license option that was available at the time was applying for a banking license, right? And me being then like a technology company, like a startup guy that just wants to move money in the smart way, you know, predominantly driven by code, the concept of applying for a banking license was obscene, right? So that was my starting point. So I could choose between two things. I could give up. I mean, since we're having this conversation, I guess it's pretty obvious I didn't. didn't give up. You right. just design your own payment infrastructure from the ground up, a new business model, and you try to figure out how to get uh, through the market or into the market with the licensing options that you have. So that is how this journey was born. So I designed a, a brand new payment infrastructure, payment system from the ground up, uh, new technologies, new service ar- architecture, new formats. The architecture was was put together uh, by me. I wrote the functional description. I think it's like 250 pages of functional description. Wrote it in Python. And um, that's where we started. And that was the foundation of what ended up being called MCash. So MCash was like the service name. It was also the company name we formed in 2010. So 10 years anniversary uh, this year. And I guess the rest of the story to sum it up was we designed what you would know as, you know, Alipay or Cell or Venmo or whatever name you want to throw at that. It's an easy payment solution for consumers. It's an app you just download. You can connect it to any funding source. You can send and receive money in real time only using phone numbers. You can get money paid out to your bank account if you want to. There is a merchant proposition as well. So businesses can accept payments using this method. All of that we had finalized and designed in 2008-9. And then we formed a company in 2010. And we got a patent for it, and we traveled around the Nordics trying to sell this to banks. And the only reason why we did that is because we couldn't apply for a banking license. We saw that as, mm-hmm. as like a crazy move. With my previous businesses, I've, I've always distributed through partnership models because I, I believed I had a good idea. I had a technical solution to the problem, but I didn't have distribution. So I mm-hmm. always sort of partnered to do the distribution. That has worked beautifully in, in my other businesses. So in, I tried that in this case as well. So I traveled around with a smartphone. This 2007, it was launched. So that was fortunate. We started from a point where we designed an infrastructure. We thought of SMS as the way to initiate payments. So you can imagine how uh-huh. like rudimentary we started to, to reshuffle the cards at the bottom of the deck. But we were lucky and the smartphone was introduced 2009 and 10. I mean, the smartphone was still sort of a strange thing that the cool kids had. And every uh-huh. single banker, again, all male, 
obviously were you know holding on for dear life to their blackberry mm-hmm. so when i came oh, they in, still do over here but continue oh they do <laughs> well i'm i'm in toronto right like it's it's, it's a patriotism <laughs> thing as well as a stubbornness thing right um yeah so when when we stepped into the meeting rooms i mean first and foremost even in 2010 and 11 when we had these meetings fintech wasn't really a word head of innovation wasn't a role you had in a retail bank Everyone was fat and happy from card acquiring. You know, the concept of moving financial transactions onto a mobile screen was still weird. Some of the banks has introduced SMS services to like initiate payments inside of the bank instead of having to log on to the internet. You had to be enrolled and still OTPs and all kinds of stuff. So it's, we were still weird. We were weirdos. And when we came in, they were just like, ah, no, money is not going to live on that screen. Come up with a better idea. So we were miserable. We fail. I mean, we, we literally failed. We had this whole thing in our hand and we failed at getting it out through the door because the bank said no. And I could then again choose to give up, but I didn't. So I went back to Norway. I you know, assembled the team and I said, it might be me. I might be a bit too cocky or you know, it, there, there might be many reasons why we're unsuccessful in selling this. You know, lo and behold, it might be the guys on the other side of the table, but I can't for the sake of my life believe that the, there's anything wrong with the idea. And we all agree mm-hmm. that, you know, there is an opportunity here for money to live on this screen. And we decided that we wanted to make it happen. So uh, we doubled down. So we decided then to apply for the first license under what was called PSD. Uh, today, it's called mm-hmm. PSD1 because we have PSD2. So the payment services yeah. directive. And because of my research, I knew that this was about to get fully implemented in, in the law. So I was ready to apply for that license. And we fundraised about 5 million euros, which was crazy amount of money back in 2013, which is when we closed this. Again, fintech was still, PayPal was the fintech name. People knew uh, everything else was sort of unknown. So um, raising 5 million euros and applying for that license was crazy. We launched the first mobile payment service in Norway called MCash. And uh, we uh, did a lot of things wrong uh, since we were distributing on our own. So being the geeks we were, it was like we, we support every imaginable use case. I mean, we had fully oh, integrated. Oh, Yep. Right. We had everything. A we had a whole shebang, like the, yeah, the whole Christmas tree, like this, we managed to get this monolith of a service up into the air. And then people just looking at us weird and said, so you want me to just use my phone everywhere? It's like, yay, but they didn't really get it. So we did a lot of things wrong in terms of marketing and go to market and the way we told the story. But we also did enough things right to be fairly successful. I mean, we had closed in on, on like three, 400,000 users at the end of that journey which is, you know, a 5 million population market, but considering... Very good saturation, my goodness. Yeah, but you have to also consider then the addressable market, right? So internet access, smartphone penetration. So I would say Mm -hmm. that the market was around 2 million users. So getting close to half a million users at the end of this and many thousands of merchants... Uh, so we were actually quite happy. We were successful. And then by this freak of nature, uh, random serendipity event, due to some prior art that was discovered, I think it was somebody in Germany who had the, the original patent for that. We lost the patent protection, which for oh. us wasn't, investors loved the patent. We didn't really care about the patent. But then the largest bank in Norway decided, you know, this wasn't such a bad idea after all, even though we said no the first time around, Daniel came. So let's make our own service. So they put together a bunch of, of consultants. They made their own service and they launched it with the largest marketing campaign that Norway has ever experienced. I mean, larger and than how Norway. did that go? They mopped the floor with us. Uh. So, you know, our growth uh, stagnated. We were still larger than them, but they were growing pretty fast. And then, then it dawned on me. It's like, okay, so 
Learning number one, go back to your roots and, and find a better distribution model. You know, doing it yourself mm-hmm. is really hard and never underestimate the value of the sort of trust and distribution power of large players like the banks. Yeah. So even though I subjectively could say, you know, our service is, is more feature rich and, and it's better, you know, blah, blah, blah. At the end of the day, the consumer is just like, yeah, I trust this. This is nice. And they didn't, you know, you know, the majority of the population didn't know that we existed. So although we were doing really good, we were serving a niche, right? So clearly, we, we didn't have the distribution power that they had. So we decided then that since they are competing with us in Norway, and they have you know, the upper hand in terms of distribution, this is a key learning for us. How about we try to get out of this market, and we turn around and we apply our knowledge, uh, including the knowledge we now have from being beaten by someone else just because of distribution, and go into an international era? Because Norway is a very small market, and I have no muscle to beat this particular bank. So how about I try to get out of the market and replicate this on a larger scale somewhere else where this particular bank would not mm-hmm. be a competitor. So that's what we decided to do. And we ended up then negotiating with several parties and um, the other, the largest bank group in Norway, which is like a savings banks uh, collaborate. It's, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's a group of banks operating under one name. But and these savings banks, they decided that, you know, they were missing out of the opportunity. They understood that this was an opportunity after all. So they fought just like the other bank eventually did, following suit. But they didn't have any tech and they didn't have any competence. So we ended up you know, selling the Norwegian operation. So a license to our technology for use in Norway only, in addition to the clients that we had on the platform. So that was financially very good for us. And I was going to say that must have been lucrative, but continue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, w- it was lucrative. And I mean, considering the situation we were in, right, we were between a rock and a hard place. We knew that we could turn around and reuse our technology elsewhere, but then, you know, we've invested a lot of money and time into building Norway. And if we're going to abandon that, it would be good to leave with some cash. So we got a sensible deal, but we got one sort of hiccup in that whole thing. And that's maybe the one thing that I would regret from doing that business is that after the sale went through, they called us and asked us if we wanted to run it for them. (laughs) (laughs) We, oh, this code is awesome. What is it? We don't know how to work with it. So, I mean, there was a lot of competence and not only on the tech side, but also on the commercial side in terms of how to actually build a mobile payment scheme, right? Because we were the first ones who did mm-hmm. it. Although we did a lot of things wrong, we, I mean, those are the people you want to talk with. It's like, you've run here before? Yeah, I fell over a hundred times. Great. Tell me where to, you know, skip the stones. So we agreed to do that. Again, financially, it was quite lucrative. And I mean, in hindsight, I've, I've pondered this many times back and forth. Would I have been able to warn settle sooner if I said no to running this for them? The answer to that is obviously yes. But then on the flip side of that, if you look at the competence and sort of unfair advantages that we've collected over the years from saying yes, in addition to everything else, you can't buy that for money, right? So, I mean, we invented the thing, we implemented the thing, we tried to sell the thing to the banks and we failed. Then we applied for a license as the first one and we launched it. Then we were in competition with the largest bank then we sold to a bank and then we helped the banks compete against yeah. each other working on the inside. And then finally, you know what happened? These guys decided to merge the two initiatives. So today in Norway... <laughs> in the end, you won. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, at least we collected, you know, we got paid and we collected yeah. a very unique collection of experiences that you can't buy for money, which I'm, I'm now in hindsight, I'm very happy that we brought that with us to build our next leg of the journey, which is settled. Excellent. And let's, uh, let's go into settle. So the next leg of the journey, what does that look like? So taking in all these experiences and sort of the, the unique position that we were in and having worked on the inside of the banks and competing with the banks, we knew or had a very strong sense that 
our definition of mobile payments would be a trend, just like the SMS and the Nokias and everything, would flourish across the whole globe. And we had some external proof points of that as well, looking into Alipay and what happened in China. That was sort of a secret for many years. I mean, when Alipay is telling the story now, it's like, yeah, we started this you know, in 2000 and, and, and what is it, like 2004, but nobody heard about this or knew anything about what was going on until later on. So we were certain uh, coming out of Norway that our technology and our competence can be applied on a larger scale and serving both consumers and businesses across Europe and specifically Europe because it's un- underserved. And from a mm-hmm. regulatory and compliance perspective, the legal framework is quite similar. So with our license, we would be able to serve most of Europe quite conveniently passporting out of Norway. So that's what we mm-hmm. decided to do. So we spent one and a half years after we closed uh, or you know left the table from the bank deal in Norway, we, we spent one and a half to two years not doing the same mistake again. So not, not doing the Daniel thing. So this time around, I had a lot of talented people with me who had more experience, a lot of corporate people who wanted to do a startup. So they joined and they said, we need to do some market research because we believe it is a good idea and we have the tech and we have the experience and we have the license, but what should be the business model? How do we apply this? Like, do we sell it white label? Do we license the technology? Do we sell it for cash? You know, do we run it for them? Is it a cloud thing? What is it? How do we do this? And I agreed. So we ended up traveling and, you know, telling the story I've told you with a bit more intricate details about the business dispositions and the strategy and why a financial institution would launch such a service to protect themselves, especially related to PSD2 in, in Europe, so open banking. So we told that story. We met more than 300 financial institutions throughout the journey. And we told that story in exchange for them, you know, spilling their beans. So what do you think? What's your position? Have you heard mm-hmm. about what's happened in the Nordics? Do you know what Alipay is? What's your position for PSD2? Is it a compliance thing? Is it an opportunity? Is it a threat? Is it all of the above? How are you going to address this? Are you scared that, you know, the big techs are going, coming in to, to serve your clients? We all said yes to that one, but then continue. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we summarized the results and we figured out that we came to some conclusions. We believe firmly that there will only be one domestic winner in the mobile payment space in every individual market. And we've experienced that from, from the Nordics as well, is that once you reach a certain saturation point, you're extremely hard to beat. And if you, can, if you can facilitate a setup that enables competitors to, to collaborate, basically, draw references to Visa or MasterCard or any like four-party card scheme. So why on earth is two retail banks who are battling it out, competing you know, head-to-head on getting your attention? Why are both of them giving you a card with somebody else's brand name on? Right? The reason for that is they make money from it. And because it's one brand, one scheme, one setup, it's very structured then you get massive acceptance and and distribution. My customers will pay to your customers and vice versa. There's an interplay, a dynamic there, which is unique. So we put that into the model and we figured out that unless we can facilitate that one scheme wins, unless we can facilitate local ownership, which we discovered was very important, and unless we can facilitate collaboration between competitors, we will not have anything to serve. It doesn't really matter if we have a technology because it's extremely hard to pick the winner. So if we're selling it to one bank and that doesn't become the winner, like, what did we yeah. get out of it? It's like so many industries, it's not the best technology to play, right? It's the other pieces of the ecosystem that determine the winner. Exactly. So based on that knowledge, we designed Settle. So Settle is a mobile payment scheme. It's a mobile payment technology. 
It's a mobile payment network. It's a mobile payment business model that enables financial institutions to join in, much like my example with Visa, to form a domestic winner in every individual market. And on top of that, we obviously centrally interconnect them, just like Visa mm-hmm. does, so that you yeah. have one, one brand that wins domestically, but it's, it happens to be the same brand that wins in your neighboring market, and we interconnect them with the ambition of becoming the number one mobile payment scheme, firstly in Europe, eventually globally. And now you're going around picking off countries slowly one by one, right? That's true. <laughs> Excellent. So it's quite the journey. I thank you for, for sharing it. We're running a little bit tight on time. So I want to make sure I ask you the three questions that I ask everybody. And then, you know, like what I, what I love about this conversation altogether before we go any further was the fact that besides the, the, you know, early hustler becomes a fintech entrepreneur story, which is fantastic, was the evolution of, of failure and iteration and, and figuring it out. And then now you're doing it again having learned everything you learned the first time and you're going to be far more effective because of it. And you truly understand the ecosystem. So I commend you on that. So three questions I ask everybody. First one is basically if you had one wish for something to change in your company or the ecosystem or the industry as a whole, what would it be? Wow. That's a big question. (laughs) I Um, always stump people with that one. So I guess I would remove fear and fear of failure specifically, because it's, it's mm-hmm. not very natural for me uh, for obvious reasons. I know it's an unfair advantage that I have because I've failed and sort of struggled through so many things as an entrepreneur that I've, I've grown accustomed to that. I'm not, I'm not afraid of failing. And what I see building something as complex as a mobile payment scheme at this scale we rely on partners coming in. We rely on partners taking a certain amount of risk, breaking old models, thinking differently to create tomorrow. And there are so many deals that we struggle to form because of fear, right? The fear of failing, where people are not able to make decisions because they want to have this, this classical, they want to hire a consultant and point fingers and then, you know, never, mm-hmm. nobody ever got fired for, for, you know, buying Microsoft. So that's the one <laughs> or thing. Or IBM, yep. <laughs> That's the one thing that I would change to remove the fear of failure inside these very stubborn and traditional organizations, because it's not only going to favor us, but it's also going to favor themselves because we're trying to bring them into the future. It's interesting. You kind of hit upon one of the key recurring themes of the podcast, but in a different angle. And it's, it's more so always been about banks looking at shortening their vendor procurement cycles when it comes to startups and, and smaller companies. And realizing, I mean, I'll use Canada, for example, of all the podcasts I've done, of all the people I've spoken to, a grand total of one, one fintech is sold in in less than 12 months to a major Canadian bank. Like everybody else, nowhere near it. And we're talking 36 month cycles before you get a contract if you're lucky. And yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think you're right. It's just no one wants to take the liability and they're afraid of getting blamed for it, right? So second question, what's been the biggest challenge in getting to where you are today? Oh, man, can I only list one? (laughs) <laughs> there's there's so, so many cha- yeah, there's so many challenges i guess funding i would say so mm. simply because i mean we have the tech nailed down we have the license nailed down we have unique set of competences nailed down and experiences that you can't buy for money but to build a pan-european mobile payment scheme actually requires a decent amount of cash i mean looking at mm-hmm. the, the the large players who are massively successful if you look at the amount they've invested. I mean, even the scheme that I was, was part of forming in Norway, which is sort of my legacy there now, which is used by more than 80% of the population, owned and run by, by others, but it's my legacy the way I see. And I mean, they, they, they lost, what was it, the equivalent of 25 million euros on running that scheme oh. last year, while still being massively successful and having revenue, they're, they're still sort of on this cycle on converting this from an investment 
that will go profitable over time because they're replacing card and other types of infrastructures that has a different incentive model in it. So it's very cash intensive. I mean, look at the valuation of Alipay when they're being listed now and how much money that they've raised and are going to raise to continue to scale. It is a very cash heavy thing to do. And I would say that that's the the largest challenge that I've stumbled upon is that I have everything else, but it's very hard, again, the sort of fear of failure to find the right capital partner to be ambitious enough to believe that you can actually change the payment universe and create a new standard. Yeah. And especially knowing it's like a winner take all market, right? You make the wrong bet and, you know, that money's for a lot for not, right? So I, I totally understand that, but it's, uh, it's if you don't, someone else is going to get there and I, I get the reticence, but they got to take a chance. So last question, what excites you the most about what it is you're working on and keeps you getting up every morning to keep fighting a good fight? Oh, that's easy. I mean, it's serving our clients. And I'll tell a small anecdote on this. So when I invented mobile payments the first time around, I did it on my own, right? I was sitting there drawing this up. I architected it. It was very techy, but it was driven by the simple vision that I wanted to enable people to send and receive money as easy as texting. And when I actually made that work, when I gave the app and introduced the app to friends and family, that's the proudest moment, right? When, when people came to me, even people that I didn't know and told me that I'm using this, I did a taxi ride. This is a fun story did a taxi ride and the guy tell, you know, taxi drivers talk about all kinds of weird stuff. He doesn't know who is, who is driving around. And he's telling me a story about how mobile payments is making. Have you heard about this thing, right? I'm using this app. I'm, yeah. paying, I'm paying allowance to my children now, right? I don't need to stop by the ATM. There's no more. Everything is easier. That moment, that's why you do it, right? Because you get that recognition. And, and I'll be honest and say, I do that. I do the whole thing for that recognition. But the path to get there is to you know, solve problems for real people and real businesses and make their lives easier. And I, I know it sounds like a cliche, but for me, at least that's no, it's really, not. really- I, I, yeah, no, I mean, I totally get that. I, I totally understand. And I, the entire validation point, I was going to say, at least you had a cab ride that went better than that one Cal cap that had, uh, <laughs> that, that did not go well for him. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so otherwise, uh, I, yeah, I mean, there's nothing, I mean, this is your child, right? This is your baby. And and hearing people take pride in your child, it's going to make any father very happy. So Absolutely. Daniel, thank you so much. Very much appreciate the time and uh, and the persistence uh, for showing so many other fintechs the way. Thank you for having me, Jason. And thank you for recognizing that. It's given me a lot of gray hair, but also a good stories to tell. So yeah, that they have been everything from starting from vending ice cream on the water to pioneering mobile payments. That's a unique, unique journey. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. So that was my interview with Daniel Doderlein of Alcom. I hope you enjoyed that. And thank goodness for people like him being as persistent as they are, because if not, we would still, we would probably not see much progress in the uh, mobile payment space. So as always, this has been FinTech Impact and I'm your host, Jason Pereira. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever is your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.